All right, so we have this morning a, another um, kind of a combination of getting our, our, our anchor, our assurance, our, our hope, our confidence from the Word in First Thessalonians uh, 2 here, and then we will come back and have part three of our five parts on God and gender. Um, so it's another big combo morning for us. Our text this morning is 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 16, and our title is The Power of the Real Word of God. Uh, this is a complicated paragraph, not a, not a simple paragraph to preach, honestly, but the point is really clear, and I just want to state it here from the beginning. The point of this paragraph is that the real Word of God works powerfully in such a way that it can strengthen the Christian to stand against even the most severe opposition. The real Word of God works powerfully in such a way that it can strengthen the Christian to stand against even the most severe opposition. So let's go ahead and look at verse 13 now. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 And we also thank God constantly for this, that when... You received the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So I want to begin by giving us just kind of a very simple way to think about what's going on in in this verse. Remember that in verses 11 and 12, which we studied last Sunday, Paul said that he and his team took this ministry in Thessalonica very seriously like the responsibility a father feels for his children. Verse 11, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So, There were some opponents in Thessalonica who were saying, ah, Paul was just in it for his own glory. Or Paul was just in it for the money. But Paul says that is not true at all. We were very serious about what we were doing because the gospel we were proclaiming was from God who was calling people into his own kingdom of glory. Kingdom of glory. So we were not like fraudsters. We were like, a father who feels this sober responsibility for his children. So with that in mind, now look at verse 13 again. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. So on your handout, here's the kind of the simple way to look at this. Verses 11 and 12, we took this very seriously, Paul says, because this was from God who called you to his own kingdom of glory. And verse 13, we thank God that you took it very seriously because you realized it was truly the word of God. And then at the end of verse 13, he says that because it's the true word of God, it works in those who respond to the word with faith. The word is powerful in believers. We're going to come back to verse 13 a little while later. Right now, I want us to keep pressing into verses 14 through 16, because here Paul gives evidence that the Word is powerful. And the evidence is the way in which the baby Christians 
in Thessalonica were strengthened by the word of God to stand despite great opposition from the Jews. Okay, so verse 14, for, okay, so for this is how we know the word works, okay? For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So, the, Thess- the Thessalonians were faithful despite suffering. That's one of the things the true Word of God does in a person. It works in you in such a way that you would face anything rather than turn away from Jesus. You would say, His loving kindness is better than life. Life itself. And so Paul thanks God that this was true for the Thessalonians. And he says in verse 14, they became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. So he's speaking about the earliest Christian communities, the earliest Christian churches that were planted in Jerusalem and then spreading out into into the surrounding communities. He says the Thessalonians became imitators of them. So that's looking back 15, 16, 17 years It wasn't an intentional attempt by them to imitate those churches. It was that they did imitate those churches by being faithful despite persecution from the Jews. The end of verse 14, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. That phrase, your own countrymen, is is just referring to their fellow citizens. And we know from Acts chapter 17 that the fellow citizens who stirred up the town against this new church in Thessalonica were the Jews who lived there. They were the ones who tried to take down this baby Christian church. And yet God's word worked in the Thessalonians in such a way that they stood firm, just like the first Christian churches in Jerusalem and in in Judea. And then verse 15 continues to describe certain Jews who wanted to oppose Christianity. Verse 15, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. We'll pause right there. So there was, tragically, a very long history of some of the Jewish people rejecting God's messengers. And that same pattern, that ancient pattern, continued in Thessalonica. I want to read you some words of Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 23, I'm kind of excerpting here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Which is exactly what was happening to Paul. So that, verse, this is Matthew twenty three thirty five. so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because of those things. 
he knew they would reject him and crucify him too. But not everyone, right? Not Paul, who's writing this. Many Jews were saved. Many churches were planted in Judea. But some Jews continued to follow the ancient pattern of rejecting God's messengers. And that pattern continued when Paul came to Thessalonica preaching the true word. They ran him out of town. Okay, so go back now to verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen, your fellow citizens, as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last." So there Paul speaks very strongly about the wrath of God upon some of his fellow Jews. I, because I don't live in a hole, I am aware of the fact that this is not a fun text for right now. <laughs> because we have just witnessed horrific terrorism by people whose publicly stated intention is the complete annihilation of the Jewish people. And so it is essential that we be careful that we understand what Paul is saying here in these verses and what he is not saying. First of all, remember that Paul was himself a patriotic Jew, if we can say it that way, raised in Jerusalem, who deeply loved his people. A few years after he wrote this Thessalonian letter, he wrote to the Romans and he said, I am speaking the truth in Christ I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So his Jewish brothers. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He also wrote in Romans 10, 1, Brothers, my heart, desire, and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And then he wrote that it would happen. He wrote that the true olive tree would be grafted back in. He said, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And yet it is in this way, he said, that all Israel will be saved. As regards the gospel, they are enemies. See, that's the same thing. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So there is no question about the depth of Paul's love for his own Jewish people. There is no way that here in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul was condoning any sort of violence against his own Jewish people. And yet, Paul was in a season of his life and ministry in which some of his own Jewish brothers were literally chasing him from town to town, both driving him out as well as trying to overthrow the Christian churches that he left behind. That's why he said in Romans 11, as regards the gospel, they are enemies. 
And so that's what he's referring to here in verse 15 when he says that they oppose all mankind. Now, if you stop right there, you could potentially have a recipe for anti-Semitism. And unfortunately, there are people, you have seen these quotes, you know what I'm talking about. There are people currently, and there have been sometimes Christians in the past who have said things like, Jews are the problems with everything that's wrong with the world. And that is horrific, and it is not at all what Paul is saying when he says they oppose all mankind. You have to read the next phrases. He says they oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. That is what he means when he says they oppose all mankind. He means that there were some Jews who not only wanted to prevent Jews from converting to Christianity, they wanted to prevent Gentiles from converting to Christianity too. They wanted no gospel of Jesus proclaimed anywhere. And so he says in verse 16 that in doing this, they are always filling up the measure of their sins. There is a point at which God's justice in combination with his patience reaches an end. The sins build up and build up and build up until they reach a point at which God's judgment surely must begin. And so as Paul looked back at the long history of how certain Jews rejected God's messengers from the beginning of Israel's history all the way up until Paul's time, he saw, tragically, a cup of judgment that had reached the tipping point. And so he says in verse 16, wrath has come upon them at last. Now, he did not mean that no Jews could ever again be saved He did not mean that there was no more any hope for the Jewish people. As a matter of fact, Paul went right on to the next towns and right into the synagogues and kept telling the Jews about Jesus because they could be saved. And in Romans 11, Paul said that when the fullness of the Gentiles had come in, then Israel too would be saved. So he was not without hope for the Jewish people. He was definitely not calling for any sort of violence against the Jewish people. But he was stating the reality that the rejection of God's messengers had reached a tipping point and the wrath of God had finally arrived. Now, nobody knows exactly what Paul was referring to when he says, wrath has come upon them at last. Um, it is, um, there are a number of different possibilities. Uh, one possibility is that he's referring to one of the there, there were some very, very hard things that the Jewish people went through in A.D. 48, 49, leading right up to when Paul wrote this, probably in A.D. 50. He could be referring to those things. Um, it is possible that Paul was referring in a spiritual sense to the hardening that had come upon their hearts from God. That may be the wrath he's referring to. It's also possible that Paul sees, he knows this We'll see this later in Thessalonians, that there is looming judgment about to fall, AD 70, and the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. It's possible that Paul sees that coming. I don't know for sure. The point is that certain Jews were under the judgment of God because they had not only crucified Christ, but also seemed to be doing everything possible to prevent anyone from believing in Christ. And in one sense, that broke Paul's heart And in another sense, it upset him. The hope of Israel had come, and yet some of his own Jewish brothers didn't even want him to tell anyone that the hope of Israel has come because they didn't believe it. 
Okay. That's not easy, huh? It's a, it's a hard set of verses. But let's remember the main point. The point is that they, Paul knew they took the Word of God seriously and that it was at work in them. And how did he know that? Because they were faithful despite the suffering. Because they were faithful despite what the Jews in Thessalonica stirred up against them to try to destroy that little church. That's what the true Word of God can do. It can make us more like Jesus so that we are faithful and strong to stand no matter what. So Paul thanked God that this was true for the Thessalonican, <laughs> Thessalonians. Uh, Thessalonians, there we go. All right, now let's go back to verse 13. Because in verse 13, Paul makes a huge claim that has very direct importance for us as we sit here with our Bible open, looking at 1 Thessalonians 2 today. And the question is this, as you look down at that page, are you looking at the Word of God or not? Were the teachings of Paul, both verbally and in writing, actually the Word of God? See verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. God was speaking his words through Paul. And this applied not only to Paul's gospel teaching, but also his writing. Would you look ahead with me? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, which is referring back to what he's been teaching in the previous verses. Whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Look ahead at the end of the letter, chapter 5, verse 27. Chapter 5, verse 27. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Keep going into 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And look at 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So he's saying that both the spoken teachings and the written teachings had the authority of God himself. And that's one of the reasons why in several of his letters, Paul would personally sign it or personally write a greeting at the end. You see that right here if you look at 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Why is that important? Because his was the apostolic authority. And so, he claims that these letters were, these letters are the Word of God. So the question is, how can he make that claim? Is that believable? I put on your handout a couple of resources because the question we just asked is not a question you can answer in in 15 minutes. 
um, though we'll touch on a couple important things. But I just want to make sure you are aware that there is a... We spent like a couple of years answering that question as a church family several years ago. That series was called The Trustworthy Word. I put on there the URL on our church's website where you can find that. It is admittedly a little hard to find your way around just because um, it's not all there. Um, there were lessons that we didn't get recorded. You know, the audio went wrong or something. Um, there are lessons that we did in like small group um, uh, format. It wasn't really something I teach that I, I taught <laughs> that we could record. Um, so it it's a little bit piecemeal, some of it on there, but it's really helpfully divided by categories. And if you if you go look at that and you're trying to find something, just let me know because even the stuff that's not on there in audio or whatever, I can give to you in in notes and so forth. So pretty much all of the questions about where did the Old Testament come from, where did the New Testament come from, what about you know who determined which books are in the Bible and all those kind of questions are uh, translations and all those things were dealt with in that series. So I wanted to make you aware of that. But then, if you wanted just one sermon to listen to that really directly connects to our question this morning, it's this one that's called Big Promises, Fulfilled Promises, Powerful Result. It really gives an overview, um, more than I'm going to be able to share this morning, of uh, why something like First Thessalonians 2 is the Word of God. So, those resources are there for you. But let's go to the inside of your handout now. Uh, So starting point here, number one, is that Jesus brought the truth. John chapter 12, Jesus said, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say, as the Father has told me, Of course, in John 14, he said, I am the truth. Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So Jesus brought the truth. But that leaves us with two challenges and one big question. Here's the first challenge. Number one, Jesus was going to leave. Jesus left so that he was no longer here on earth to teach, to speak for God. The second challenge is that while Jesus taught his disciples a lot, he didn't teach them everything, and they didn't understand a lot of it, at least when he initially taught it. So with those two challenges in mind, the question is, How could the truth that Jesus brought, how could it be passed along? How could it be preserved to all generations and to all nations? If Jesus returned to heaven so that he couldn't teach on earth any longer, and if his followers knew a lot, yet their understanding was incomplete, and sometimes they misunderstood, especially before the resurrection, how could the truth be preserved and passed along for all generations and all nations? And thankfully, we have Jesus' own answers to that question. Number one, Jesus appointed apostles to officially represent him and his teachings. Teachings. Now, we can't get into all the details of that right now, but basically, Jesus chose men from those who had been closest to him, and he appointed them as messengers, apostles. These were men who had been with Jesus from the beginning, 
They had been witnesses of his resurrection body. Some of them had been witnesses of his transfiguration glory. And so, for example, the Apostle John writes, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews writes, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord... Jesus brought the truth, and it was attested to us by those who heard. 2 Peter chapter 1, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John Say to the council in Jerusalem, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They had been with Jesus from the beginning. They had seen Jesus. They had heard Jesus' teachings. And they had seen the resurrected Jesus. And so the apostles were the official spokesmen appointed by Jesus himself. But among the apostles, there was one exception who didn't fit the exact pattern of the others because he hadn't been with Jesus from the beginning, and that was the apostle Paul. But he was not an exception chosen by men, and he was definitely not an exception chosen by himself. He was an exception chosen by Jesus when he was a hater of Christians, when he was ravaging the church, Jesus chose to meet him, to stop him in his tracks, to save him, and then to call him to bring the word of God to the Gentiles. So here's what Jesus said to Paul, again on your notes, Acts 26. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant of, and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes. So now, we want to read what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. So will you, in your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Because we want to um, read the first 10 verses. Remember, Paul was church planting in Corinth when he wrote the letter to the Thessalonians. And then later he wrote back to the Corinthians. And here's what he said. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Right? Jesus gave it to him. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But, By the grace of God, I am what I am. Would it have been right for the Apostle Paul to say to Jesus, no, Jesus, you really messed up here. I'm not going to go tell the Gentiles the gospel because I'm just not worthy. Would that have been right? (laughs) He needed to go with confidence that God had called him to it. And yet with utmost humility that it was only by the grace of God that he was what he was. So, on your notes, look with me. Colossians chapter 1. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That just means servant. Became a servant according to the stewardship from God. It was entrusted by God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And if you were here last Sunday, you're hopefully, some dots are connecting there. Because remember last week he said, we take this so seriously because God has called you to his own kingdom and glory. And here in Colossians, he says, man, I am the steward of this message, this gospel, which is that Christ in you is the hope of glory. Jesus gave that to him. And so Paul says here, if we go back to 1 Thessalonians 2 now, Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians 2, I'm not a fraud. I'm not in this for my own glory. I'm not in this for greed. I'm not in this for my own safety. Good grief, I keep ending up beaten and in prison. I'm in this because God called me to this. Because Jesus stopped me on the road to Damascus. Because when I wanted to preach in Jerusalem, Jesus said, no, you're going to the Gentiles to tell them that Christ in them is the hope of glory. So, if Jesus returned to heaven so that he couldn't teach on earth any longer, how could the truth be preserved and passed along to all generations and all nations? Because Jesus appointed apostles to officially represent him in his teachings. But we still have an issue, that second challenge, because while he was on earth, Jesus couldn't teach the apostles everything they needed to know. And especially before his death and resurrection, they struggled to understand a lot of what he did teach them. So how could the apostles know enough? Jesus had an answer for that too. Number two, Jesus gave the Holy Spirit. On the night before he died, Jesus gave a remarkable set of promises about the coming work of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's a little bit tricky territory here um, because we have to understand that These are promises that we can apply to ourselves. 
There are senses in which these promises apply to us. But we also have to understand that these promises were spoken directly and specifically to the apostles at a particular point in time. And so the first meaning of these promises is something Jesus was promising to do in the apostles by the Holy Spirit. And what are those? So I just summarized them for you if we go to the back page of your notes now um, because we don't have time to go read through all of them. So just read through the list with me. Jesus promised as he spoke to the apostles on that night before he died, he promised that he would give the Holy Spirit and then number one, the Spirit would teach them all things. The Spirit would bring to their remembrance all that Jesus said to them. And that is hugely important because all the things that Jesus taught them and they didn't understand or they didn't even remember, the Spirit brought back to their remembrance. Number three, the Spirit of truth would come and testify about Jesus. So the Spirit kept teaching them about Jesus even after Jesus was gone. Number four, the Spirit would guide them into all the truth. And Jesus, and Jesus clarified that that included the things that they couldn't bear at that point, that they weren't ready to handle yet. Number five, the Spirit would disclose to them what was to come. And we have these prophetic things in the New Testament. And then number six, the Spirit would disclose to them the truths about Jesus that would glorify Him. So again, those promises, they have application to us, but they were first and primarily given to the apostles. The Spirit in them would enable them to remember old things, and the Spirit would teach them new things. And so through the apostles, by the Spirit, Jesus ensured that the truth would be preserved and passed along to all generations and to all nations. There is a remarkable line about this in the book of Jude, if you look at your handout again, And Jude is not a very well-known book, but it is very important because Jude was probably Jesus' half-brother, who was ironically named Judas. Apparently, two of the half-brothers of Jesus became important leaders in the early church, uh, James and and Jude. And so we have this little letter from Jude, and he says in verse 3, "'Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation,' I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. And the word faith there, in that sense, isn't referring to just like trust in God. It's referring to the faith, the body of truth, the gospel message. Remember, we saw in our scripture reading today, Paul said, I have kept the faith. And so when Jude writes this, remember, this is a man who knew Jesus very personally, a man who knew Peter and James and Paul, and he says that the faith was once for all handed down to the saints. That's what we would expect from what Jesus promised, that through the apostles, by the Spirit, the word of Jesus would be delivered authoritatively to his followers so that it could go to all people in all places in all generations so that we would not be left without truth so that we would not be left today wondering where's the apostle that we need today to tell us new truth or different truth. Because we have it, it was already handed down to the saints. Once for all doesn't mean it happened in one moment. It happened over several decades. But once for all means that the end result was that the faith was delivered once and for all 
to the saints. Schreiner writes, No supplements or corrections will be tolerated. The gospel of Jesus Christ has received its full explication through the apostles. Again, Hebrews 1, verse 2, In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And through the apostles, by the Spirit, that was authoritatively delivered. And so, we sit here in California nearly 2,000 years later reading 1 Thessalonians. We are reading part of the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You know that what's happening right now in these moments this morning is part of what Jesus had in mind when he stopped Paul on that road. Jesus stopped Paul to save him, to give him the truth, and to send him to you through these writings. What Jesus began doing then, he is continuing right now in our hearts and lives today by his word. So we could say it this way, Jesus speaks to us through Paul in these words by the Spirit. This is the word of God. And so if we look back at 1 Thessalonians 2.13, what does Paul say about the word of God? The end of the verse He says it works, or it is at work in you believers. For those who will respond with faith, it works. It did work, but it didn't stop working. It still is working. Paul says it like that. When we hear the Word of God and seek to respond with faith as believers, then it is at work in us. And it can change us to be like Jesus in remarkable ways. So that we can, for example, stand up against even the fiercest opposition. That's the point here in this passage. But that's not the only kind of work it can do, right? We need so many other... um, We need the Word to work in so many other ways, too. The Word can strengthen you with Jesus' own strength. Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. The word can give you Jesus' own peace in circumstances that seem so utterly unpeaceful. The word can make you kind like Jesus and gentle and patient like Jesus. The word can make you wise like Jesus. The word can make you a sacrificial servant like Jesus. How can it do that? Because it really is the Word of God. That's how it can do that. And so what Paul is rejoicing in in this passage is that the true Word of God came to Thessalonica and they believed it. They received it as the Word of God and it began to work in them and it's just kept on working on them and will no matter what. Father, I thank you that your Word is true and it is powerful. We often get frustrated because we wish more was changing in our hearts and lives, and yet you have transformed us from rebels running away from you into people who love Jesus and gather here because though our faith is so weak, we want to grow. Though our love is weak, we do love you and want to grow in it. So thank you for your word working in us 
And I pray that whatever it is your people are facing today, whether it is severe opposition or so many other things, I pray for the word at work in them and for you to grant them faith, believing it, that it might have power in their hearts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from.